If you have your Bibles with you, turn, turn with me to the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. James, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, verse 1 reads, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet you have not, because ye ask not. Verse 3. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know you not? that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture said in vain, a spirit that dwelleth in us lasted to envy? Verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he said, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well done, ladies. I very much appreciate the special song this morning. His wounds have paid my ransom. Just by uh, way of letting you know what's to come over the next few weeks, uh, next Sunday we will have a special speaker, somebody that you know, uh, our pastoral intern, uh, who's been working with me all year, uh, will be our special speaker next Sunday. So Lord willing, Braxton will be speaking for us next Sunday. If I could encourage you to... If I could encourage you to come, don't think, oh, well, pastor's not going to be speaking. I will be here. I'll be watching to see if you're here too, okay? Uh, Braxton has done a very good job so far this year. We're uh, now at the beginning of September, and he's been a pastoral intern all year since the beginning of the year. My goal has been for him to preach 150 times this year. And almost every time he preaches, we get an opportunity to go back and walk through the sermon and talk about things that he did well and things that he can improve on. And I've watched as he has improved very much through the year. Of that 150, I think he's accomplished about 100 of them so far. And so when he stands to speak to our audience next Sunday, that will be his largest uh, to date. And uh, I would encourage you to be here after the service next Sunday, I would encourage you, if you were blessed by the Word, you were uh, steered closer to the Lord as a result of the time in the Word, I'd encourage you to say so to Him. Affirm those gifts that God has given to His people as they help to lead the church. Also, I'll make note that uh, this week, some of you have seen it, went a bit viral this week on uh, social media. Uh, this week, I will be speaking a Better Together conference for a Christian professional network. That'll be on Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday afternoon. 
uh, this week. Uh, if you would like more details about that, I can encourage you to see Agima and Sharon. Uh, they're the ones that have put that together and make sure that you see them. I don't really have any details as far as venue and how to get there and all of that sort of thing. I will find out on Thursday uh, where to go when I need to go. And so uh, Becky helps me with making sure that I don't overbook my calendar and small details are not a gift for me. And so I, if you would like to join us, you're more than welcome. Uh, I just want to make sure that I clarify that's not a church function. It is just something that I as pastor am getting the opportunity to partake in. Next Sunday, we'll have Braxton speaking. The following Sunday, we'll be back in the book of James again. And then the Sunday after that, we'll be kicking off camp. My brother Nate will be here to be our guest speaker that Sunday. And he'll also be the guest speaker the following Sunday. So that'll be the first, I believe, the first of October, as well as the 24th of September. Uh, that following week, also, I'll be speaking at the National Pastors Conference up in Mount Hagen. Look forward to what the Lord's doing in our church and in our lives. We're in the book of James this morning. Again, happy Father's Day. That's as far as I'll take that. James chapter 4. You might be familiar with a verse that says this, No man can serve two masters. This is a, a very important thing for us to have in our mind as we come into this passage this morning. I, I plan to speak on this idea, the uh, chapter 4, verses 1 down to verse 12, flesh out this idea. You are either, as a believer, you are either changed by grace or you are consumed by your lust. And you're going to see that in our passage today. And with this idea, no man can serve two masters, there are two very different ways to live. And you get to, as a true believer, get to choose which one of those you can follow. As I look back in my own life, I I uh, went through uh, several years of flight training, learning how to be a commercial pilot. And I remember the early days, had an uh, instructor. His name was Jeff, nice guy. He taught me the early basics of how to fly. I'd never done flight lessons before him. And I remember as he took me out to the airplane and we walked around the airplane. My very first time to actually get to touch one. I had planned and, and studied in my own look at the books and all of that. And I wanted to learn how to fly. And so Jeff takes me out to the airplane. He's got the keys. We're going to fly this airplane today. And when we walk out and the first thing that he did was he taught me how to do a pre-flight. He talked about how to check the propeller and make sure the propeller's not going to fall off. He checked, showed me how to check the flaps and make sure that they're operating correctly. How to check the ailerons and make sure the hinges don't have any cracks in them. How to check the oil. We went through that whole airplane and I was just paying attention, soaking it up. He was my instructor. Then we took off and he showed me how to hold, uh, hold a heading and he showed me how to bank just right without losing your altitude. He showed me all these things and I was learning. I went for another flight with Jeff and, and, and I tried to put into practice what he had taught me on the last one and then we build on that. And then third lesson, fourth lesson. After about 10 or 12 lessons, Jeff started getting busy with other students and other, uh, other, other work. And they assigned me to a new instructor. So the flight school, I had started off with Jeff, but now I've got to start doing training with another guy. And to be honest, I can't remember the other guy's name. It's been a long time. And so here I am with a new instructor, but I do remember this. As we're walking out to the airplane, he's got the key. And I remember as we're walking out to the airplane, he asked me, he said, so what have you learned? I said, I've learned how to do the pre-flight, and I've learned how to take off, and I've learned how to turn, and I've learned how to hold an altitude and how to hold a heading. He said, all right, let's go do it. 
you show me what you've learned how to do. And I remember going out, and I, as I was doing the pre-flight, I'm walking around, and he's just following me. I'm doing the pre-flight, and he said, no, 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 no. The way you're doing that, it's better if you do it this way. So, that's not what Jeff taught me. But okay, you're my new instructor, so I'll do it the way you want me to do it. And I started doing it the way he, we, we, we're taking off. He said, why are you doing it this way? I said, that's the way that I, no, 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 no. This is the way you do it. It's okay, I'll do it your way. You're my new instructor, okay, I'll do it your way. And I started to pick up on the ways that this other guy wanted me. Now, a couple of flights went by, a couple of training sessions went by with the new instructor, and now Jeff came back up. And now I'm back to flying with Jeff again. And I remember as we took off, Jeff looked at me and he goes, I didn't teach you how to fly like this. This is not the correct way to do it. And I thought to myself, no man can serve two masters. (laughs) And it's a truth in life. You cannot ter- serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24, very clear. You'll either love the one or you'll hate the, and you'll hate the other, or you'll serve the one and you'll despise the other. Now, Jesus made the statement about money. You cannot serve money and God. And, and James is going to bring it home today for us. He's going to tell us, you've either been changed by the gospel, you've either been changed by grace, or you're being consumed by lust. So look with me. We're going to start off in James chapter 4. We'll be in verses 1 to 3. And I just want to remind you, James is the brother of Jesus. And Jesus did his earthly ministry. James did not follow Jesus. We walked through that in our introduction to the book of James. James did not believe in the Lord Jesus. And it wasn't until Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection before James began to trust. I think of the words of 1 Corinthians 15 where it says that Jesus appeared. He bodily appeared unto Peter and then he appeared to the twelve. And it says that he went and appeared before 500 at one time. And then it lists specifically and then he went and appeared to James. And I think back on the way that James had rejected Jesus. The, 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 The Gospels is clear about this. Several times it makes statement that Jesus' own brothers did not follow him. And here after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus went back to James. Do you remember some of the things that Jesus had done in his ministry that definitely should have pointed his brothers to the fact that he was the Son of God? I think of the time in the synagogue when Jesus stood in Nazareth and read from the Torah. Can you just think with me what that must have been like? Nazareth. This is the synagogue where Jesus grew up. Most likely, unless James has gone visiting his grandma somewhere else, most likely James was in the congregation that day. We know from the book of James and from the book of Acts, we know that James was a devout man. He just had a hard time believing that Jesus was the Son of God. And I can just imagine in that day when Jesus read the scroll, there they sat, and the Bible says that he opened the scroll. He came and took the scroll from the minister, the word that's used in the book of Luke, and he opened the scroll and he read from it. He read from a passage actually in Isaiah. And he read things like, the gospel will be preached unto the poor and the eyes of the blind will be opened. And Jesus read that in their presence and he closed the scroll, handed it to the minister, and he went and sat down. And the words of the people that were there that day, the words of the people was, no man ever spoke with authority like that man. 
And then Jesus followed it up with this, and I can just imagine from his seat, Jesus said, today those words are fulfilled in your ears. They got angry. They took him, and their plan was to take him and throw him off of a cliff. I can't help but wonder James was a part of that. Wants to kill his own brother. I'm speculating. But he was a part of the synagogue that wanted to kill Jesus. And by God's miraculous way, Jesus slipped out from among them. They were unable to hold him. He knew today is not the day, this is not the time, and this is not the way in which I die. He knew that. And yet, James was a part of this. He would have seen these things. And then you remember, the Lord Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, showed himself unto James. And I just can only imagine what that conversation was like. James, you watched me in the synagogue of Nazareth. James, you watched as I hung on the cross and you watched as mom cried. You watched as they laid me in the grave. James, look, I'm risen. I'm so thankful this morning. I'm so thankful that our Lord Jesus is gentle and kind. I'm so thankful that he's meek and he's lowly and that he cares. And I'm so thankful that he went out of his way for James. And I'm so thankful that he's gone out of his way for us today. You see, his grace should change your life. His grace should change you. And I wonder this morning if you are changed by his grace. James has been writing this epistle, five chapters. He's been saying the same thing over and over. What he's been saying is, examine your faith. Look and see, is it real? Or did you just tack on, I prayed a prayer so I'm good to go? Are you holding on to your salvation as your I'm going to get out of heaven card? Or are you just skirting by? Do you not really act out what's in your heart? Because what's in your heart should come out in your actions. And he's given us six tests up until today. Today is the seventh. And today's test, if I were to put it this way, the question would be like this. Do you act like Jesus? Do you act like Jesus? I've broken the passage, verses 1 to 12. I've broken it down into three sections. And there's a warning of the way that evil men live, and you'll see it in verses 1 to 3. Verse number 1, our first point, where do wars and fighting come from? Where do wars and fighting come from? This is James chapter 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fighting among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. You see, he's used the word lust at the beginning of those three verses. He used the word lust at the end of those three verses. He answers his own question. Where do wars and fighting come from? And the answer is they come from your lust. And the word lust literally is your desire to have other things that are not your own. Another way that we might say it is your covetousness. Your desire to have is driving wars and fighting among you. I would submit to you that the word you, in verse 4, from whence comes war and fighting among you, 
is the beginning of an idea that is, you as a Christian should not be this way. And as he develops verses 1, 2, and 3, and especially as we will see it in verse 4, that this you shifts from you as a believer should not be acting this way to all of those people that are worldly the way that they live. In fact, let me take a moment and show it to you in verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. And so what he's saying here is you as a believer, if you are a true believer, you will act like Jesus, you won't act like the world. And I do want to make a mention also in verse number 3. You see the words in verse number 3. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. I want to make mention here of that because quite often that verse is taken out of its context to be used in connection with Matthew 7, 7. You remember Matthew 7, 7. Asking you shall receive, seeking you shall find, knocking it shall be opened unto you. And then many times we'll take that verse, add it together with James 4, verse 3, and you receive not because you did not ask properly. As if, and hear me well, brethren, as if God just needs you to ask the right words in order for him to answer your prayer. James's point is, you got a problem in your heart. This is not God is some kind of lucky machine that if you come to Him in just the right way, then He'll open the windows of heaven and pour out the blessings. That's not the way God works. So please don't take verse 3 and tack it to Matthew 7. It doesn't work that way. In fact, verse 3 is not a way for us to pray. It is a condemnation that you're praying with the wrong heart. From whence, he says in verse 1, From whence come wars and fighting among you? Literally, where do wars and fighting come from? Where do they come from? They come from our lusts. And on a macro scale, big picture, you can see that with the word wars. Where do wars come from? On a big scale, it comes from one nation's leaders looking at another nation and saying that nation has resources and land and things that we want. We have been blessed, brothers and sisters, in our short history, in our nation. We have been blessed that we have not had another nation amass its army on our borders. We have been blessed. And I think in recent history, February of last year, some 200,000 soldiers amassed by the Russian army on the border of Ukraine, and you know what has happened over the last 18 months or so. Estimated that 170,000 Russian soldiers have now died, and possibly 190,000 Ukrainian soldiers have died. From whence comes wars? It comes from lust. As one nation says, we want what the other nation has. That's on a macro scale, but if I go to a micro scale... Notice that the words in the opening phrase is from whence come wars and fighting among you. So now he takes it from big picture and brings it down to little picture in that you have wars and fighting among you. Where where does that come from? It comes from the lust that's within you. And you see it in verse 2, the answer, you lust and you have not. It's this war that's going on in your 
members. That word members should cause your mind to remember some, uh, some, some words that we've used in the past. And this is from Romans chapter 6. Paul gives this exhortation using the same word. This is Romans 6 and verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. And neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness of God. So why is it that, James says it, why is it that you have wars and strife and fighting within you? It's because you have lust within you, and that lust within you causes your members, your body parts, to go and do things. This is not members as in people within the church. This is members as in the parts of your body. And so because you have lust within you, your body parts reach forth and do things that they're not supposed to. James, uh, Paul said it like this, don't yield those members as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead yield them as members of righteousness for God to use them as He sees fit. And I hope that this is not your description as a believer. If you're a true believer this morning, if you're a true believer, all of you belongs to God. He gets to take all of it. He's going to give us a list of problems in verses 2 and 3. You lust and you have not. I want you to watch. Uh, There's about four of these in a row, and every time he tells us, you do this, but you don't get what you want. Here he goes. Verse 2, you lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. In other words, you can't get what you desire. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. And you ask and you receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. And it starts with lust and it ends with lust and at every stage you never got what you wanted. I will speak of the ways of an unbeliever because these are the ways that an unbeliever acts. And I would hope that you as a believer don't act these ways because you should have been changed by grace. But an unbeliever cannot help it. He acts upon his lust. He covets. He sees. And in many different ways he acts upon this. Sometimes maybe it's by speaking quickly to speak over someone. Not listening. You'll remember that passage. Or maybe he shows favoritism towards one and puts down another. Many different ways we've seen in this epistle of James. And he lusts, he wants, and he goes after and tries to attain it. And maybe even he goes to the point where he kills so that he can get it. And the fact of the matter is, he never gets what he wanted. That's the way that lust works. Lust will cause you to say, I want this, but then you find out that it's just empty. So then you move on to that, and then you find out it's empty. And then you go for the next one, and there's never a fulfillment of it. And that's why he says, you wanted it, but you never get it. I want, I want, I want. Give it to me, give it to me. It's mine. I'll take it and I'll kill. That's the words that he used in verse 2. I'll kill if I need to. And it plays out in so many different ways. You might say, but no, I'm not a murderer. But just let the lust in your heart go unchecked long enough, friend, and you'll be surprised where you end up. 
This can be seen in so many of our own tribal wars. I submit to you that the average person that ends up in a tribal war did not wake up that morning and say, today is the day, I mark it down, I'm going to be a murderer. People don't think that way. But where does it start? It starts like this. I know that that's the next tribe's land, or the next family's land, or the next clan's land. But that soil is really good, and they don't use it for a garden. So I'll use it for a garden. Plant the garden. And then that guy comes along and he goes, no, wait, this is my land. Why did you plant a garden in my land? And he chops it down. And then you come along. Hang on a second. He chopped down my bananas. I'm about to kiss him now. Do you see how suddenly it goes from lust to kill? Or take, for example, a young couple, a young man and a young lady, not married, but they are consumed of lust one towards another. And suddenly we find out that one of the the young lady is expecting a baby. There's shame involved. There's a moment where they think to themselves, everybody finds out, well, then there's going to be shame on me and my family. And they think to themselves, well, now I'll probably have to drop out of school in order to take care of this baby. So perhaps the answer is abortion. And you're left with killing. Why? Because of your lust. Do you see how easy this is to slip into? You say, I'm not a murderer. Oh, friend, let your lust go unchecked. You have no idea where you'll go. James is asking us this morning, Do you act like Jesus? Are you consumed of your lust or are you changed by God's grace? Where does strife and fighting come from? It comes from the lust that's within your members and that's nothing like Jesus. Nothing. Brings me to the second portion of the passage. And I see this in verses 4 down to verse 6. And the second point would be this. A true believer will not act like the world. A true believer will not act like the world. Look at verse 4, and he'll say it that way in so many many words. Verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not, don't you know, that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? You adulterers and adulteresses. That's the easiest way to see how lust consumes someone. But then he quickly goes into the caution. Friendship of the world is enmity with God. If you're a true believer, then you don't want to find yourself being at friends with the world and enemies against God. You don't want that. So if you're a true believer, your desire will to be close to God. The Scripture is filled with cautions about being an enemy against God. Listen to these. Here's Isaiah 42 and verse 13. It says, God will defeat his enemies. Here's the words. The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. No enemy ever overthrows God Almighty. He always beats his enemies. 
Uh, Psalm 68 and verse 21. But God shall wound the head of His enemies. God will wound the head. You don't fight back against Him and think that you're going to get in a good punch against God. He will defeat you. And He terrifies His enemies. Here's Hebrews 10 and verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. It should be terrifying. So when James cautions us and he says, if you're going to be friends to the world, you're going to be enemies against God. I hope, friend, that you don't want to be anywhere near being enemies against God. God is holy. That's the core of the gospel. You don't get to jump straight to Jesus loved me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, without going through. God is holy, infinitely holy, and His wrath abides upon sin. You don't skip that to go straight to Jesus on the cross. You go straight to Jesus on the cross, somehow you will think, I get to hold on to my sin and be friends with the world. No, James is very clear. If you're going to be like Jesus, you aren't going to be like the world. You will be different. There will be evidence of this in your life. And it's more than God does not sin. It is God cannot sin. That's how holy He is. It's not that He doesn't choose to sin. It's His very character to be good. It's His very character to be sinless. And His holy wrath abides upon men who embrace their sin. And He calls them His enemies. Friends, listen this morning. I don't want to be an enemy of God. Because He will crush His enemies. You see the words of verse number 4? Know you not that friendship of the world is enemy, enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is enemy of God. And if you're a believer this morning... I think you should take joy in the fact that you're no longer His enemy. You used to be, but you're not anymore. Here's the words of Romans 5 and verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So friend, there was a time when you were an enemy against God. If you're a believer today, you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus, and not only has He moved you from position of being an enemy, you're now made right with God because of the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Here he says it again, Romans 8, verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. God, I hope that you're not striving in this lifetime, I hope you're not striving to be friends with the world, for if you're friends with the world, you're enemies against God. In my Bible, it's just across to the other side of the page. I want you to see somebody that was a friend of God. Look back to chapter 2 and verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Why was Abraham called a friend of God? Because he believed and he acted out upon his belief. I believe that the Lord Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He took my sins upon Himself. I believe that. And now my life will demonstrate that. My actions will be coming out as a result of my belief. And with this change in actions, I want to be a friend of God, not a friend of the world. 
So I'm a friend of the world. I'm an enemy against God. And not only do I get to move from being an enemy to a friend, I also get to move from being an enemy to being a son. You might remember the words of John chapter 1 and verse 12. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. I get to be not just a friend of God, I get to be a son of God. No longer an enemy against him. When I'm a true believer, I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a son of God and a friend of God. And I think that grown, matured parents will understand what I'm about to say. There's something special about being a son and a friend. You follow me? To be a son, to be a child and a friend, that's special. I want to be a friend of God. I don't want to be a friend of the world. Why would I ever want to go back to being an enemy against God? He's saved me. He's made it possible for me to be His son and to be His friend. I want to be in that category, not back in the world. You see in verse 5, Do you think that the Scripture says it in vain? The Spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. Your natural man wants to do wrong. Your natural man covets and says, I want, I want, I want. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. That's what your natural man says. And it lusts, into verse 5, to envy. More striving, wars, fights within you. And then verse number 6. I see a turning point in this passage with this next phrase. Here's verse number 6. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. There's a shift in tone here. The first five verses essentially were, don't be a friend of the world. Don't let lust control your life. But now, in the latter part, he's going to say, but God gives more grace. I want to take a moment before I go further, and I want to help you to understand there's a difference between grace and mercy. A lot of times, we might mistake them and think that they are the same, but they're not. Mercy is different from grace. Mercy is essentially, I don't get what I do deserve. And grace is, I get what I don't deserve. They're not opposites, but they could be defined almost that way. Mercy, I don't get what I do deserve. I'll tell you what we do deserve as enemies against God. We deserve to be crushed and banished away from Him in hell forever, separated from a holy God. That's what we deserve. And in His mercy, those who come to Him humbly and accept the Lord Jesus as their Savior, in His mercy, He does not unleash His wrath upon us. That's His mercy. But His grace, I might say, is like the icing on the cake. His grace is where He pours out His manifold blessings upon us, and He makes us to be His friend and His son. And He writes our name in the Lamb's book of life, and He prepares for us a mansion in heaven. You see, that's His grace. And He chooses to call us His own. That's His grace. And He gives, the words are used here, He gives more grace. Oh, friend, we don't deserve that grace. I don't deserve to be standing here this morning, 44 years old. If I take an honest look at the globe, 
There are many places throughout history, many times throughout history, and many places today that 44 is past the expiration date. And in His grace, He chose to allow me to continue on. And I think of just over the last few years, fractured spine, brain injury, being told that I'll never walk again, and at times not being able to string words together to make a complete sentence. Oh, He gives more grace. And I think of the goodness that God has displayed in my life and given me a wife that would stand beside me and bless me and work along with me and encourage other people with me. Oh, He gives more grace. And I think of the way that God has given us a body of believers that love one another and care for one another, look after one another and call upon one another and send each other encouraging messages. Oh, He gives more grace. And I think of the way that according to Romans 8, He brings situations into my life. And even even though those bad situations might feel like they're terrible, God has told me that He's brought them into my life for my good. And those things are displays of His grace. I hope this morning you hear the words of verse 6, but He gives more grace. And He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6 was a quote from Proverbs chapter 3. And God's nature is such that He's good and He's gracious. I'll come into verses 7 down to verse 12, and I'll say it this way. As a recipient of grace, you should live out grace. As a recipient of grace, you should live out grace. Again, the question is, are you changed by grace or are you consumed by lust? Or simply, are you living like Jesus? Do you act like Jesus? As a recipient of His grace, you should be living out grace. Let's read verse 7 to verse 12. Here's verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother speaketh evil of the law and judges the law. And if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? And so I see in these verses, I see eight rapid-fire ways for you to live out grace in your life. I'm not going to list them up here. You can see them in the passage. There's eight of them. They're just rapid-fire, and I don't think that he's saying, do this one, then, then do this one, and then do this one, and then do this one. I don't see them as chronological. I see them as simultaneous. That they should be lived out together, and we'll see them. I'll just walk through them quickly. The first one, submit to God. Look at the words of verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. We've said this before. It's kind of cliche. Whenever you see the word therefore, you need to pause and see what it's there for, right? 
So why did he say, therefore? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Well, anytime you see the word therefore, it always connects that verse to what came before it. So let me connect those two for you, because what I did unintentionally was I separated them by saying verses 4 to 6 was one idea, verse 7 to 12 is another idea, but they're connected. So let me show you 6 and 7 together. Here's 6, read it, going right into verse 7. Here's verse 6. He gives more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Why do you submit yourself to God? Because He gives grace to the humble. If you don't submit yourself, He will resist you. He will push back against you. You come before Him proudly, walk in, I'm this kind of fellow and I can do this for you and I can help you. Why? Because you want to consume it upon your lust. I'm going to get you over to my corner so I can have you support me in my endeavors in life. He goes, no, 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 no. Instead, I'm going to live the other way. I'm going to submit myself to God. Why? Because He gives grace to the humble. So submit yourself. It's a very practical thing. Submit yourself. Do you want more grace from God? Submit to Him. Second one, resist the devil. You see that in verse 8. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't try to engage him in battle, friend. He will kick your can. Don't get up in the morning and say, today I'm taking on the devil. You're a fool. He is mighty. The good news is, you serve one who is mightier. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Oh, friend, submit yourself to God and just resist the devil. The devil will flee from you because you're submitting unto the one who is the mightier power. So when sin raises its ugly head, use the words of Scripture. These members no longer belong to you, sin. Romans 6.13 I'm not going to use these members to fulfill unrighteousness, but instead I'm going to use these members as members of righteousness unto God, and I'm not going to consume upon my own lust. Absolutely not. Third, draw nigh to God. Verse 8, draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. And don't just do this with your lips, friend. Don't just draw nigh to God with your lips. You know how, what I mean, right? Oh, I'm following Jesus. I'm a good person. That's following with your lips. There's a life that needs to follow. Isaiah 29, verse 13 gives a warning. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips they do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. He goes on in the following verses in Isaiah 29, he goes on in the following verses to say he will knock down those who only serve with their lips. Friend, don't just say, I'm a follower of God. There should be a complete submission with your life. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. And I hope that you hear the words that come with that. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. pastoral for a moment. If you find that you've wandered away from God, maybe that wandering has been for moments or maybe it's been for years. Remember that who it was that strayed. It wasn't him. And here's the beautiful promise. If you'll draw nigh to him, 
he'll draw nigh to you. I think that perhaps the most beautiful picture of this comes from Jesus' story, the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember that story? The prodigal son, he did what was, I think, just a horrible thing to do to a dad. Dad, give me mine inheritance. Literally, Dad, I want the money you're going to give me when you die. So in my mind, it's best that you're just dead now so I can have your stuff. What a terrible way to think. And here the prodigal son took the inheritance and he ran off into the far country and he wasted it with riotous living. He found himself feeding the pigs, looking at the pig's food, thinking, I wish I could just eat the pig's food. Could you imagine what he looked like, what he smelled like? Can you just imagine? We talk about vile raiment. And then he comes to his right mind and he comes back to the house. And on his way back, you remember what his plan was. His plan was, I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell the father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. If you'll just let me be one of your servants. I know that you take care of your employees. I don't want to take care of pigs anymore. I just want to come back and just be your servant. There's a bit of a repentance in that. And, And do you remember the story? how it went. The dad was there, and he's watching, and he saw the son coming from afar off. And do you remember what the dad did? He went, and he embraced him in the words of Scripture, and he kissed him. Dad put his lips on that nasty boy. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you, friend. These are encouraging words. So if you find yourself in the far country, he's not the one that left. You are. Come back. Cleanse your hands, he says. Cleanse your hands, verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Put aside your sin. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Get right with Him. Get a singleness of mind that sets your affections on things above. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. You say, but wait a second, I thought that we should rejoice. Yes, there are times to rejoice, Ecclesiastes' words. There's a time to laugh and there's a time to mourn. And he even goes as far in the book of Ecclesiastes as saying the house of mourning is better than the house of rejoicing. So how does this work for us as a believer? There are times when you need to take an honest assessment of your sin and mourn over it. God, what I've done is wrong. Psalm 51 idea against thee if I sinned. I'm coming with a broken and contrite heart. To be in a spirit of mourning is a good thing. Weep over your sin. And then he says, humble yourself, verse 10. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. You don't lift yourself up. He lifts you up when you humble yourself. Oh, He gives more grace to the humble. And then the eighth one, don't speak evil of your brethren. You're not the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Did you see the words there in verse number 11? Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judges another? If you see that your brother is doing wrong, Scripture is very clear what you're to do with that. Go to him alone. Matthew 18. If your brother has offended you, go to him alone. Hey, brother, this is what happened. You've done this. It's a sin against me or it's a sin against someone else. You go to him alone. And if he hears you and receives you, Jesus' words, you've gained a brother. But you know how to not gain a brother? I'm just like you go and tell everybody else. That's exactly what he's saying not to do. Don't speak evil of your brother. You will not gain him. You'll drive him far away. And you know what you're doing while you're speaking evil of him? You're speaking evil of the Lord because the Lord is the one who's able to lift him up. The Lord is the one who's able to help make him right. But you've decided that you're going to lift yourself up by showing everybody else how bad he is. Speak not evil of your brother. In all of this, perhaps you might have a thought that might be something like this. Pastor, are you saying that we will be sinlessly perfect for the rest of our lives? And I hope that that's not what you're hearing from a passage like this today. Oh, the fact of the matter remains. You're still being sanctified. I'm still being sanctified. More and more... I'm being set apart more and more. I'm getting rid of sin from my life. I should be more and more sinning less and hating sin more. The day will come when I receive my glorified body and I'll no longer have to put up with this flesh. In that day, I will no more sin. That will happen in the rapture of the church. We receive our new body. Or it will happen when you are buried in the ground. That's when you get to be with Jesus forever and you'll be glorified. But until that day, you will continue to fight sin and you will have to be reminded to submit yourselves to God. Purify your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your heart. Draw an eye to God. He'll draw an eye to you. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Don't speak evil of your brethren. We have to be reminded of these things. But oh, I hope that more and more your life is being marked by the fact that you've been changed by grace and you're not consumed by your lusts. From whence comes fightings and wars from your lusts. I'm going to close with this thought. I said at the beginning of the sermon that this is James's seventh test in his epistle, namely, do you act like Jesus? Have you ever noticed that true love for your neighbor is hard to find in our society today? Have you noticed that? True love for your neighbor. You remember what Jesus said, the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And true love for your neighbor is difficult to find in our society today. Instead, largely within our society, we see distrust among neighbors. He looked at me sideways, or he didn't smile at me, or I waved at him and he didn't wave back, or he didn't look at me long enough while I was waving at him. Must got this like ting ting. We have all sorts of ways that we don't show love towards one another. 
we don't look after one another, we don't lift one another up, we don't encourage one another, we see what the neighbor has and we think to ourselves, I wonder what he stole in order to get that. It's just the way we are in society. Sadly, we call ourselves a Christian nation. I'm not saying any other, any other nation has it right either. I live in this society, so I'm speaking of this society. If you have your Bible, look over, if it's still open, just a couple of pages over to 1 John. I want to point this out and then we'll be done. 1 John, look at verse number 8. The fact is that, is that we've all sinned and we've sinned against a holy God. And the Lord Jesus took that sin upon himself and we've been called to look like Jesus. Look at verse 8. This is 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. No can get on you yet. Don't try and say you don't have any sin. But if we confess our sins, hear hope in these words, friend. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He has promised that if you will confess, He will be faithful to forgive. Those are words of hope. And if we say, verse 10, if we say that we've not sinned, we make Him a liar. His word is not in us. Now look at chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. That should be your goal. I want to be putting aside this sin. I want it out of my life. I want to get rid of it. I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to submit to God. And now listen to the rest of the words in verse number 1. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate is like an attorney. And I want you to hear this in, in, in light of this idea that we are to be acting like Christ. The word here is advocate. We have an advocate. If you sin, we have an advocate. So you can just imagine with me a courtroom. There's a courtroom, and, and perhaps it's Satan is the accuser of the brethren before God Almighty, the judge. And there we have an advocate. We have an advocate that's Jesus Christ, the righteous. And, 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 and I don't know if you've ever thought about this. When you, you, you look into the courtroom, and there's the accused sitting at that table, and to his right is the defense attorney. I don't think of all the jobs in the world, I don't think I could be a defense attorney. I'll tell you why. Because the defense attorney has attorney-client privilege. And the defense attorney, in order to set up a case, he needs to know all the facts. And so most likely, he's had some pretty in-depth conversations with the accused. Now, can you just imagine, just take the worst criminal you can think of. The worst. And that guy sits down with attorney-client privilege, and that guy confesses everything he's ever done. Confesses it to his defense attorney. And then the defense attorney's job is to come into the courtroom and try to show how innocent this guy is? I can't do that. If you're a defense attorney, like him, you. <laughs> I just can't. I can't, I, I can't wrap my mind around that. I think prosecuting attorney, I could, I could find a lot of joy in that. But defense attorney, 
Now here's the thing. You and I, sinful people, we're at that table of the accused, and we're the one who is the worst criminal you can think of, and we have an advocate with the Father, that's Jesus Christ the righteous. And you realize what he's doing before the Father. He's saying to the Father, I went to the cross and I've paid for this sin. And he's confessed that sin and that sin has been taken care of. The wrath of God, the mighty, righteous judge's wrath has been poured out upon the Advocate. He's taken that on our behalf He's taken our sin. Friend, you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus. His sin is still upon you and you have no advocate before the Father. But for you and I that are Christians, there's a new way for us to live. Jesus Christ, look at verse 2. It says, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation, it's a gift that turns away wrath. Jesus is our propitiation. He's the gift that has turned away the wrath of God Almighty. He has turned away that wrath in Himself. He took our sin upon Himself on the tree. And He stands before God Almighty and says, I am the propitiation. I am the one who takes away the wrath of God. Yes, He is Guilty, yes, he is a sinner, but I have provided the gift that will turn away the wrath, and I am the one who has already paid for his sin, and I not only did I pay for his sin, I paid for all the sin of the whole world. And Christian friend, do you know what the opposite of that is? Jesus Christ, the advocate with the Father, who gave of himself to make us right with him. You know what the opposite of that is? A worldly way of saying, that person did me wrong. So he owes me. I want what he's got. I'll take. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. That's the worldly way of living. From whence comes wars and fighting among you comes from our lust. I wonder if you act like Jesus this morning. I wonder if you're a true believer. Examine your faith. Heavenly Father, this morning I pray that you would help us to examine our faith. I pray that you would awaken within us a desire to live as though we have been changed by grace. I pray that we would not be consumed of lust. 